So Alex, how was your 2023? It was, it was a good year. Uh, let's uh, dive more into it on this episode. So this episode is our movies that shaped our 2023. This is Alex from Los Angeles. And this is Karen from San Francisco. Welcome to Movies That Shaped Us. We're two longtime friends who grew up on opposite ends of the globe with very different backgrounds, but we're both shaped and are still being shaped by the movies we see and love. In each episode, we'll cover a topic around important people, places, events, and moments in our lives, and then explore it through three of our favorite movies. So, you already talked about this, Alex. Our topic for today is the year 2023. So, not necessarily our top movies of this year, which, by the way, spoiler alert, we will do an episode on, but these are the movies that shaped our year. Talk to us about how your year was and how you thought about this list. Yeah, so this is, um, like you were saying, an episode we do every year that I find really fun and interesting just from a, you know, looking back on the year, thinking about the major themes, and then which movies either I saw this year, old and new, that kind of fit those themes. Yeah, it was just typical, like, thinking back on what the major things this year, whether it was uh, mainly feelings, like feelings that I felt uh, throughout the year and, and moments in the year that I think I will always think back on 2023 and be like, yep, that was the year that, you know, I felt kind of like this or these things were were happening that were affecting me personally. And then movies were actually pretty easy for this this year for, for me. Like it was once I kind of figured out what the themes are going to be, which is like the hard part of this. But, uh, the movies. Like, oh, yeah. Well, it's definitely going to be these three that we'll uh, we'll be covering on this episode. What about uh, what about you? Yeah, similar, although I think my approach was probably the opposite i sort of thought about the movies when i watched them mm-hmm. which were the ones that had the most impact on me and then i tried to dig deeper into why mm-hmm. and then it's just so happened that yeah those movies had an amazing impact on me because they were resonant in a deep way in terms of what was going on with me and you know this year and my life and such so a little bit of the opposite. And it turns out all of these movies are movies that I had not seen before. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's fun. Which is kind of, I think, what I did last year as well. Mm. Because there's something about the surprise of a movie, even though it may be a a very, very well-known movie that just hits you Mm -hmm. and and opens a sort of new portal and it becomes resonant to, to your life. So, yeah, very excited to get into all these movies cool so why don't you uh, kick us off then with uh your first movie that shaped your 2023 what do you got for us Karan? all right so my number three is a little movie that nobody's heard of the visit of oz from 1939 <laughs> i'd never watched this movie in full which wow. is probably shameful to admit as a movie lover on a movie podcast but it just is um but you know, quick logline, if nobody knows, young Dorothy Gale and her dog Toto are swept away by a tornado from the Kansas farm to the magical land of Oz and embark on a quest with three new friends to see the wizard who can return her to her home and fulfill the other's wishes. Starring, obviously, Judy Garland, Frank Morgan, Ray Bulger, and directed by a million directors, but primarily Victor Fleming and King Vidor. So this movie obviously is sort of canonized. You know, what can I even say about this movie? Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, I just always, this was not a childhood classic that played at home. You know, we were more of a Mary Poppins and Sound of Music kind of household. So this movie kind of never hit us when we mm-hmm. were growing up. 
Mm-hmm. And then when I got older, I just was like, oh, this is a kids movie. And I just never watched it fully. I, I obviously seen sequences. Everybody knows the red shoes and all of that. Right. But just, mm-hmm. just never sat down and made time for it. And then this year, just sort of randomly, me and my boyfriend, we, we just said that, oh, let's just watch it. And he obviously gave me shit for the fact that I'd never seen this movie. <laughs> it's like, how can you claim to be a movie lover if you've not seen The Wizard of Oz? I was uh-huh. like, yeah, I get it. And it sort of blew me away, you know, in all its glory and its message and its meaning and how beautifully it's done in its performances. But the thing that really resonated with me, which is kind of the message of the movie, which is that there could be stuff going around you in the world, in your situations and circumstances, but ultimately you have to fight your own demons. You have to go out there and find the head and the heart and the soul and the might and the courage and overcome all that. And I think this year was a big year in terms of transitions from a work standpoint and Mm -hmm. things, you know, looking up and then not looking up or things changing and taking a different direction. But then apparently that direction is not the one that you wanted to be on. You know, it's sort of classic life. But I think we all especially post-pandemic, I feel like are settling in, transitioning still, I think. And Mm -hmm. whether it has to do with the pandemic and the world stopping down or no, but or just, you know, the age that we are in, you know, the beginning of the 40s decade is an interesting time period in in a lot of people's lives. Mm-hmm. And that's the decade we are in now. Yes, yeah, you can age us. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, we are old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little bit of that happening too. But, but yet, you know, the message of the movie really hit me hard this time. And I'm in a way, I feel lucky that I've watched this movie now, you know, to kind of fully get it i'm sure as a kid or as a younger person i would have enjoyed it for all its technical and glory and brilliance and music and singing and all of it but this time it was the full package but before i go on i know you watch this movie and love it yeah this this movie is at least in the states was on tv all the time and a movie that myself and my two sisters would watch all the time as you know really young children so i had seen this you know dozens of, you know, times, maybe even like close to 100, right? Like growing up, it was like always on. Then like I didn't watch it for a long time and then came back to it twice in the last 20 years, just as more of, you know, I watched it once after college, then once about 10 years ago until this this rewatch. So it's not a movie that I watch a lot as a movie uh, now as an adult, but every Mm. time I see it as an adult, now this is like the third time, it just strikes me more as like what a marvel the film is for like from a production standpoint, like the mm. set design is incredible, especially now that you can see this, you know, restored in HD, you know, watching this yeah. as a kid, it's on a VHS copy or on, you know, TNT or something. You can't really see a lot of these amazing painted backgrounds and the mm. visual effects are just incredible. Like the flying monkey sequence, uh, a lot of the stuff with Glinda when she comes in in the bubbles and things like that, yeah, just the amazing. visual effects are incredible. The smoke, you know, with the wicked witch sort of appears and disappears. So that I, I've sort of now been appreciative of this movie a lot more on a technical level than I was as a kid. You're just like, oh, this is cool. Like, you know, you just like the action and the, you know, you get like the allegories of, oh, these things are in you all the time. Like you say, you know, the scarecrow wants a brain, but then throughout the course of the film, he's always the one to work out plans. So he actually always had the brain the whole time is, and that's mm-hmm. sort of like the message of, of the film too, that it's all these things are inside you, even though you think you right. might not 
have the courage. It is. It's deep inside you. You have to unlock and no one can really give you courage, yeah. right? Which is uh, the match of the film. Yeah, no, it's uh, it was fun to rewatch it now. Third time as, as an adult to just continue to appreciate what a sort of uh, lightning in a bottle that they that they captured here. Like you said, multiple directors. You know, there's a lot of problems in the set and things like that. Um, like usually there are with these classic films. Yeah. But it, it is a movie that is just has something really, uh, really unique and special about it. So it was, it was fun to watch this again. And we haven't called out Judy Garland specifically. I mean, this performance, I mean, now we know the background of sort of how hard it was for her and mm -hmm. everything that went on in the production of the movie. But she's just so incredible as, mm -hmm. as a performer. And then, I mean, over the rainbow, when that song comes, you just can't help but just weep. Because mm -hmm. it's just her voice just has so much power. And and maybe now because we know so much about her life, her legacy and everything, but it just hit me so hard just watching that. And and it's not just the song and the singing, but like you said, all the technical elements as well and what this means. It's just such a multi-layered movie, which... I don't even I don't even know if they were intending for it to be that way because the production story of this movie, like you said, is so troubled, mm -hmm. which is why it's sort of hard to know that the, how intentional was this versus what it ended up being, because this could have just been like a fun children's movie. And maybe that's how it was regarded as when it mm -hmm. first came out It's only over time you see all these different layers of the movie and it'll always be in our consciousness. I think it's evergreen. And it'll always appeal to anybody and everybody of all ages. And that's sort of the power of, of this movie. And such a movie feels like comes along every few decades. And and there's a reason why this movie tests, you know, stands the test of time. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's like a once in a generation sort yeah. of film classic. And it definitely is on the, you know, if you ask a random person anywhere on the world or name like 10 movies, this probably would show up, you know, along with some like, you know, Star Wars or, or what have you, right? They would say yes. a couple things and Avatar, right? But they would, people would say Wizard of Oz. Like it definitely has that much resonance worldwide. I mean, maybe not so much in India, I guess. So this wasn't on TV a lot in India growing up or just, you just I guess wasn't... not. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. I, it's, a, it's a bummer that I it didn't hit me then. Or I guess my parents had not seen it either because they really made it a point for us to watch Mary Poppins and, you mm. know, these kind of uh, Hollywood musicals from the 60s, but not so much this one hmm. for whatever reason. Um, yeah. Maybe it didn't make it in terms of their generation. It yeah. had resonance to them. So they're not, you know, they're, they want to share the movies that they out. loved growing up. Right. So it wasn't something that passed down versus like my parents would tell me about how you know, they would watch us on TV and it would come on TV like, you know, every holiday season, like right. Thanksgiving or Christmas, they'd play it on TV, even though they grew up with black and white TV. So that famous scene when the transitions into color, like you would uh, never notice that on TV uh, because it was a black and white TV. So they, they were talking to me about, oh, the first time they realized that that was even a thing, which is an incredible VFX shot, too, of how they Amazing. how they painted the set to look sapia, use the stand in for Judy Garland in a, in a black and white costume for that so the camera can see it in black and white when she opens the door and the camera goes into the color world then the actual judy steps in because you couldn't do that any other way just absolutely brilliant but it was funny like they didn't see that until they finally saw it in <laughs> theaters like years later because on tv it just all looked black and white to them the other thing that just struck me on this 
for, for some reason rewatch. I mean, I always love Toto. Toto's always the mm -hmm. best. But in this rewatch, like this dog is so well trained. The stuff oh that my gosh. stuff that his name was Terry in real life. The stuff that Terry would do <laughs> is just amazing. Like from jump, like this amazing leap that the dog does, like off of the in the witch's castle to like go and then you know uh, find the the three you know the the tin woodsman and the scarecrow mm -hmm. in line to save Dorothy. Like Toto does like so he's he's even pulling at the you know the curtain to reveal that the wizard's a fraud i don't know i just appreciated the dog acting a lot more this time out uh toto's just is amazing <laughs> i love Toto's it amazing and very cute yeah i also have to call out just the friendship aspect i know all the characters are all just inside you and all part of dorothy but well, it's just we, so... we don't who knows who knows who knows right who knows? that's one yeah. interpretation right but, <laughs> right yeah but just this is the friendship aspect of all of them together Mm -hmm. It's also just so earnest and sweet and moving. Another reason why the movie works and another reason why it's such a lightning in, in the bottle because it's just so hard to for our jaded selves now to, you know, have this kind of sweet, earnest kind of friendship depicted right. on screen that they're just genuinely excited to just be with each other and care for each other. And now this would be labeled saccharine or I guess we wouldn't be able to do it. Right. The way this is done, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the last thing I would say after hearing you just talk about this, my mission for the next year is to watch this movie on the big screen. Mm. If it plays somewhere. I don't know if there is a 70 millimeter print of this or no, but yeah, it's not. Yeah, they didn't have this in 70, but usually yeah. it's plays at least some, you know, in LA, it'll play it somewhere. There's I think even this past fall, there was screenings of the Academy Museum of this. I mean, this you will be able to see this at the big screen. And actually, I don't think I've ever seen this in a theater, which would okay. be a, well, a we cool should thing make to do. A... Yeah, we should try to have a Wizard of Oz, uh, a Wizard of Oz get together. W one other point I'll, I'll just make too is in terms of this year and this movie for me, there there is a little bit of a, of a connection between 2023 and this movie where I stumbled across this theory that's been around since the 60s, apparently, but I had never seen it before about um, a sort of hidden message in this film, which I will say, like, at growing up too, there was always the, you know, connection you can make between Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, which is like a record, yeah. and you play it in the same, you hit play on the record as you're hitting play on the movie, and it sort of like narrates what's going on. It's sort of a fun sort of druggy kind of like, look, everything is, you know, all these connections, man. So I've done that. I've known about that. It was fun to actually rewatch this movie now that I know this theory where the reason why the book was written, uh, it was a kid's book that was written in 1900 by Frank L. Baum. And he was uh, at that time in America, there was a big battle over the gold standard versus including silver as well to increase the money supply. And there's all these debates for like decades over this. And this movie is essentially or the book and then the movie, I guess, is an allegory about the fight over bimetallism, it was called. So it's mm. like Dorothy stands in for the average American, Scarecrow's the farmer, Tin Man is industrial workers, the lion is William Jennings Bryan, who's a big politician in the US at this time. That was his nickname. Uh, the Munchkins are like citizens of, you know, of the US. You're sort of a mob that sort of doesn't really know which way to go. The Wicked Witch of the East is Wall Street, and they're trying to control mm. the money supply by only having the gold standard. That's why it's a yellow brick road. And uh, mm -hmm. Oz is Washington, D.C., and the wizard is the the politicians who are sort of like lying and they're frauds. And they're telling you things, even though they actually have no power and they don't kind of uh, aren't really helpful for you at all. Much like the wizard in this movie doesn't do anything. He just claims he is. And then it's really right, like it's not it's even all, real. It's not even real. Right. It's all about you. And in, in the book, she had silver slippers instead of ruby ones. So it was once she realized the power of combining silver and gold together, that's what would lead her to prosperity. 
And I read this and I was like, oh, this is kind of silly. And then I watched the movie this time, like through that lens. And I was like, whoa, like I do see all the hidden messages in this. This all makes sense. And then, you know, the the big one at the end of this article that I read about this in the middle of the summer, I just stumbled across this is that, um, you know, it's called The Wizard of Oz and OZ is the abbreviation for ounces, which is how they, you know, gold and silver is all done in ounces. So the whole thing is supposed to be this like political allegory that, you know, always went over my head. And it was fun to actually watch this movie for the podcast after having read this article because I didn't actually have time to go back and like, oh, I should. I was thinking like I should watch Wizard of Oz again just through this lens of bimetallism and do I believe this theory could be true? And I'm, I think it, you know, I think it could. I was like, I, I see amazing. this as a as a new message of, of this movie that yeah. uh, is kind of fun. That's amazing. I mean, that's the beauty of these classics, right? That, I mean, who knows? This is how it was meant to be, uh, but, right? Of course, yeah. But it's but fun. The fact right? that. That's what the beauty of the classics is that now that they're in the canon, we all get to kind of dissect them, analyze them, apply different theories to them, which I think further strengthens the power of these classic films, right? Because they, mm-hmm. they're they so multidimensional in that sense. Right. Um, you can kind of attack them from all these different angles, right? Exactly. And again, this new political message I never saw of, in the film before. And now, like, I want to go back and, like, watch the film more looking for these messages much like kids did with that dark side of the moon album. Like I remember that being a big thing in high school, people <laughs> talking about that, you know, it's like, Oh, you got to do it, man. It's so cool. Like <laughs> songs match what's going on, I which was it. true too. Actually, it was yeah, interesting sure. to kind of see that, which obviously that was not, I don't think, uh, you know, intentional, uh, obviously intentional no, for, for Pink Floyd, but it's, it's no. still fun. But the, like you said, it just shows the power of, few movies i think could attain a status like this where we're still talking about these hidden messages and themes and syncing right. it up to this and that i mean that's uh wizard of oz is probably a, half a dozen movies that fall into that category and it just is totally a special film and just such a blueprint and gold standard for movies of this kind but all kinds because it's such a classic story right like it's fun to watch this movie in the year of barbie which you know mm, i enjoy yeah. barbie and and have you know but a certain parts that maybe didn't quite land on me as well but it's amazing to see greta and the team kind of build this entire barbie land out of you know cloth and mm-hmm. paint and tin mm-hmm. and everything it, it's a great kind of and she talks about visitor was and how influential that movie was for her in general but also for barbie so it's kind of fun that we are coming back in a way to get out of the cg jail that we've been in for the Mm -hmm. last decade and do stuff practically and it's just a different textural thing that it brings mm-hmm. not just to the movie, but also to the performances because it's real, right? Like we are right. all humans after all. Mm-hmm. If you're walking through Yellow Brick Road and watching all this around you, you're going to act and react differently for sure. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, no, it was, it was fun to revisit this and it's it's amazing to hear this is the first time you've seen it. So that's great that it, it that it lived up to, I guess, the I mean, I assume you had oh, a hype yeah. in your mind of like what this would be, right? It it beat the hype, honestly. Yeah. Because I just was like, oh, how, how good could this be? You know, mm-hmm. and it was amazing. Yeah. All right. What is your number three movie that shaped your 2023? So my number three film is the only movie that I'm bringing to the list that is released this year. And it was, uh, or it is, The Creator, released this year, written and directed, co-written and directed by Gareth Edwards, starring John David Washington, Gemma Chan, Allison Janney, and Madeline Voiles. The IMDb plot summary, against the backdrop of a war between humans and robots with artificial intelligence, a former soldier finds the secret weapon, a robot in the form of a young child. So... 
one major theme that uh, for me out of this year is, and maybe for a lot of different folks, is this uh, new focus now on AI again. I mean, I feel like mm-hmm. every couple decades we're like, oh, robots could, you know, eventually take over for humans with artificial intelligence. But this year, I do think we reached a tipping point. And it was something not only was big in the news, also my job, you know, I think we've shared in the past before, like both of us are in tech. And I think this is something that is that is here to stay as a technology, you know, especially with uh, chat GPT, I really think was the tipping point of really bringing this to a, a point where an average person could sort of understand the right. pa- and harness the power of what artificial intelligence could do. And uh, at the same time, you know, I think there were a lot of things I was thinking about this year, too, of the downsides of this of, you know, replacing humans and a lot of uh, creativity. That was a big theme of, you know, we had a big strike this year for WGA, the Writers Guild and Hollywood and SAG, the uh, the Actors Guild and AI was a big part of this. Don't replace Mm -hmm. us with AI. You know, I also feel kind of threatened as well, you know, with my job at some point being replaced. And there's a lot of these these questions about uh, the negative sides of AI. But what this film, which it is flawed, I'll get more into the film uh, later, but it actually positions AI more as a, uh, sort of a next stage of human evolution as as a, these AI robots more as people. So mm-hmm. it was a it was, it was interesting to me coming into this this movie and again AI in general being kind of skeptical about it and seeing more of the bad than the good applications of this. That uh, this movie actually maybe kind of opened my eyes a little more to you know what actually like especially if these do become maybe this is a life right an AI could be a, a considered similarly to having a, a soul right and at that point then we should be treating them on the same level as as humans, which this what this film grapples with is that basic choice. I mean, there's a opening montage that's, that's a great one of like a newsreel, which is essentially an alternate past of like, well, what if in the 50s and 60s we, we were developed AI technology? How would that evolve to the point where in the present in this film, which I think is probably like the mid 21st century, the AIs are actually just as good as humans. And there's a attack that happens where Los Angeles gets nuked and then all of a sudden every you know the United States at least is very much against AI and mm-hmm. fighting you know the um, fighting against them and trying to exterminate them across the world and just positioning the AIs as victims as opposed to the oppressors which is typically what a lot of movies do right how 9000 mm-hmm. or uh, the matrix or terminator this movie presented them as a victim so like huh well maybe I, I shouldn't be as skeptical against you know, AI and, and thinking all just the bad things. I mean, yeah, bad things can happen, but there also could be a lot of good as well with, you know, a new phase of our evolution as just living beings. So I'm kind of paused there, but that was why I wanted to bring something in with AI. And I was thinking about maybe some older movies. And then I saw this one and I was like, oh, wow, this actually made me think differently about artificial intelligence in a way that I don't think I would have if I hadn't seen this film, which again, it is flawed. And maybe we can talk more about the actual film in a bit, but curious yeah. on, on your thoughts on AI and just and as well as this film. Yes, yeah, similarly, you know, there is obviously a feeling of scare and and all the bad things that could happen. But at the same time, it's obviously kind of a massive leap forward in terms of how we as a society and civilization can accomplish things and collaborate with each other and deepen and just make our pursuit for whatever we are after better and richer. There's no question. It kind of multiplies that by a whole lot. Mm -hmm. So I feel like even before the movie, I've been in, in kind of both those camps that this has like all things that have a lot of power, right? If not Mm -hmm. used properly and if not, put to the right context, they can have a lot of harm, but they can also have a lot of great. Mm -hmm. So 
in many ways, it sort of comes back to the humans. Because guess what? What is the AI repeating after and multiplying after? It's the patterns that it it is learning from that were created and done by humans in the first place, mm-hmm. right? So in many ways that all the theories of AI kind of owning the world and doing bad things, it's not going to have that out of thin air. It's going to mirror and replicate based on what we've sort of taught it in a way. Mm -hmm. So if anything, I sort of feel that the accountability on us as humans even doubles with a technology like this being out there. And I think in a way, the movie kind of underlines that too, because the problems that happen where things go haywire, it was because of an error in the code that humans mm-hmm. made, right? right? So it's it's very much in there. Now, can AI and machines have feelings and are they humans that we are friends with in that sense? I don't know, maybe. It's sort of, I'm not there yet to kind mm-hmm. of fully say that and the movie obviously makes that case that they have feelings and of course if you have like a little cute child the way it is in this movie who looks (laughs) does the way she talks she's just so cute Mm -hmm. of course that has an impact and but the movie asks some good questions intentionally or unintentionally that is that a manipulation of the movie and even AI that now you're as a human starting to look at this child robot as an actual child or or should you even be doing that, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that's a question that we'll keep kind of bumping against and keep trying to answer over the next few decades as this becomes more and more real. Yeah, and, and I, I think I'd always looked at that as a, a bad thing, meaning like, yeah, you know, we shouldn't get to even the point where we'd even have that question. Like, I, I want to yeah. try to save our species before we get replaced. But what this movie, I think, does is... And I think this does come from Gareth Edwards, who his past couple films, he did Godzilla. um, And then his first film was Monsters from Mm -hmm. uh, like an indie film. And I think definitely his worldview is humans are awful. And the sooner we're exterminated as a race, the better. That seems to be his his worldview, which I don't agree with. Mm -hmm. Um, But seeing this movie, I'm like, you know, actually, the way that they position the humans as being really terrible in this. And the robots actually are the ones who want peace don't want don't want to be attacked they don't want to cause any problems they just want to live their lives but it's the you know the americans slash the bad side of humanity right it's just trying to exterminate the exterminate them you know i was thinking which maybe is again the thing that this movie wants you to think is yeah maybe the they are the better versions of us like we Mm -hmm. they're the best sides of our nature and in this movie at least the americans represent the worst sides of humanity like the absolute like worst things that we ever could do are what the americans do in this and you're kind of like, yeah, maybe they should be exterminated. Like, this is maybe better for the the world if they were gone and actually the AIs were the ones replacing humans. And I think the movie does that subtly, too, with some scenes where animals, like some dogs and then monkeys, are, like, helping out the resistance fighters against mm-hmm. the, the Americans. Like, they're placing bombs. And it's very subtle. They only kind of do in a couple scenes. And they never address it. It's not like the animals are they talk or they're being used as troops from the resistance fighters or anything but it's sort of i think is is saying this thing of like we're now like even nature is against the the americans and and then therefore like the the dark side of humans and i thought that was that made me think a little bit more of like huh you know maybe actually not that i say i want the extermination of the human race however if the the if, if i think of it more of an evolution standpoint of 
well, the next part of us is we are the creators of something else and all the good that is in humans gets programmed into these AIs. And as long as there is a life and a, and a you know, quote unquote soul in there, maybe that is the where we're going to go as a species as like our bodies are, you know, die off and things. And now we're, we are just going to be code, which maybe we're code in some semblance right now anyway. And, you know, just sort of electromagnetic, you know, brain impulses and things like that. And, and DNA, I mean, this is all essentially could be viewed as code. And I don't know, I just never thought about it in that way of opening my mind up a little bit until I saw this film, which again, I don't think is perfect. I think the setup is great. The world building is incredible, mm -hmm. but it falls apart very fast, like over the course as a movie yeah, goes it's too along. too convoluted. It's like, yeah, too much stuff doesn't make any sense. And yeah. by the end, I'm like, this is just too long. Like, I don't really care what's happening. There's a whole sequence at the end with uh, John David Washington on a spaceship as they're yeah. trying to like destroy it. And I'm just sort of like, I don't know, get, get like, I don't care. Like, end, yeah. end movie. Like end I'm movie. done. <laughs> yeah, um, but calls. right. But I do think it raised a lot of really interesting questions um, that uh, about this topic that I was very sort of more of a Luddite against of like, we should sl slow down, stop. Like this is not necessarily, it's more of a bad than a good. But after this movie, I was like, I don't know, maybe like we could, there, there could be more of a, more of a balance there. It just depends on who's wielding the power, which I think is another thing this movie also touches on again with the Americans in this movie representing like the worst use of technology possible of uh, yeah. this sort of uh, floating death uh, spaceship they just kind of can go anywhere in the world and kill anyone that, that they want totally unaccountable, you know, unaccountable to anyone, which I do think represents a lot of what America is, at least in the, the 21st century. One of the most anti-American movies I've seen in a really long time, actually. I don't know if you kind of got that yeah. sense, too, but like they were definitely the, the villains fighting against the rest of the world and also the AIs, which I thought was interesting as well. But I think this movie should be seen personally, like yeah. from especially a production standpoint, it looks beautiful. Um, just incredible yeah. cinematography Especially and action. The budget it's at, you know, it's amazing. Oh my god, yeah, yeah. It looks like it costs as much as Avatar, like four hundred million dollars, yeah. but it's like eighty million. Like that's insane. But I, I wish it was there on the story standpoint too. It just, I, I think it's the story is very middling. The acting's not great either from John David Washington, yeah. someone I don't think is that good of it. I still just don't think he works uh, in really anything I've seen him in, unfortunately. I but I did think the film again raised a lot of interesting questions. I agree, and. Yeah, whether it's extermination or whether it's coexistence, you know, that's the question the movie also asks. Because the flip side is that, yeah, like I was saying earlier, AI ultimately is based off of what it's learning in terms mm -hmm. of human patterns and behaviors. The issue is that AI has the capability or capacity to just scale so rapidly mm -hmm. across the entire world, which no single human or you know group of humans can ever do it'll take years and years right for a dictator or a certain military power to kind of rise up mm -hmm. to have that kind of control ai can do that in a matter of probably seconds mm -hmm. if it were at that scale and that sort of is is the big danger i think is to how do you sort of coexist and keep that in check. But then you bring up an interesting argument that if if human emotion and creativity and that DNA, maybe its evolution is to exist in this sort of form. It, right. That I never thought about that before the movie. And yeah, I, I still don't know how I feel about it because yeah. if that's the case, then what is all this about anyway? If we are just like a you know consciousness coded somewhere, with it's so intangible in my mind mm -hmm. right now that mm -hmm. I, you know I, I can't even wrap my head around it. But but it's certainly a thought. It can yeah. 
I can sort of see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a scene that where they they're explaining one of the AIs sw like switched herself off, like basically committed suicide when her AI child was dead, or you know, so like that. That is a like killing yourself because of loss was that is a human trait that mm -hmm. uh, when they said that I was like, oh, well, then these are like basically they have souls. They are they are alive, which I think was the movie. Was, that's why they put that those lines in there. But yeah, I was thinking, yeah, well, then what's the difference between us and, and them? And maybe they're better than than humans. But yeah, it is a lot of heady. This movie raised a lot of very heady things. A lot of heady doesn't things. doesn't answer them. And I think it doesn't kind of throws the theme out there and then kind of runs away from it a lot of times, which again, I, I don't think this movie was perfect. It needed like one or two more passes on the screenplay and then maybe hire a better lead. And then this movie, I think really would be a, a classic in terms of how it deals with these things that are very resonant in 2023, yeah. at least for me, for sure. And, and uh, oh, it, yeah. it helped me for change me my mind on some things, you know? I think the, the key thing is that these questions cannot be answered in my mind. Mm -hmm. Like, if the movie had like fewer questions and then just kind of lets them sit and be and breathe for us to kind of wrestle with, I think it's a much more successful movie because we are in it right now. I don't think mm -hmm. we had the answers and having an answer one way or the other would also ring false because it'll be preachy and, and just not, you know, backed entirely because we just don't know. Right, but right. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's an interesting time, but a scary time too. You know, I don't think we can litigate all of AI in, on this podcast. Oh, right. Yeah. Maybe sure, we can have another but, episode about it. Yeah. The movie did ask some great questions that changed my mind to us, but I'm still more in. There's a scare part to it too. I think mm -hmm. for sure, just because of how out of control this can be, and and I guess the thing that we've not mentioned is the whole thing of the Nirmata and 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 stuff like that, right? Which is like, who is the creator ultimately? And right. I think that's the other thing that the movie raises is that what right do we have to be creators of machines that in some ways then we are assuming the, the role of God or whoever right. the power might be. And mm -hmm. is that okay or, or not? Right, that's right. Right, totally. Yeah, like humans, I, th I think the movie toys around with that word creator. I mean, is it Gemma yeah. Chan? Is it John David Washington? Because he's right. sort of the surrogate dad of of the child who's the new right. evolution because the child can age as a, as an AI. But no, I think those are the, the, the largest questions of all, right? Can't do, are we, if we have the opportunity to be gods, should we, right? And by doing this, does that automatically de facto make us a God? If we are creating a new species, technically like a new species or a new life form like that. And then what right. are all the implications that come right. across? And if that? we are horrible, like we, that the movie shows, then should we even be that? We probably right. shouldn't. You know? Right, right, right. And it's then, a power that we don't deserve. Right. And if, then the children that we are going to be, be making are not going to be good for overall humanity anyway. So it sort that's of true. defeats the entire argument. That, that That's true. I mean, it goes back in my mind with like, you know, like you were saying in the beginning of this discussion, technology is neither good or bad. It's just how you use it. So right. in whose hands is this technology placed? And that's where if I, you know, I do have faith that there are a lot of good parts of humanity and that there are systems we can create where a technology like that can be handled in a way that is benefits society right. versus not. But it also could very easily fall into the hands of yeah. these systems and these controls where, no, this is all just about taking away everyone's job finally more money up to the top of the, the richest people get richer and the poor people get even poorer and they that are not even necessary anymore. We can yeah. just let them all die off because we don't need to exploit them for their labor. We can just use these, these AIs or like using AIs to do create creative things, which I think is way a bridge too far. I mean, AIs can't be, yeah. 
can't be creative. The whole definition of creativity is come up with something no one else has done. And AIs have to have something to, to think back on. So I think it just yeah. depends, like you were saying, on where, who controls it. And that's where, you know, this movie, I think, postulates a lot of different, you know, good and bad sides of that, whether they have their own free will or whether America is, is controlling it. Because when America did, that's when the nuke went off in L.A. by mistake, because the humans made an error in the code. That's a really good point. But yeah, the movie doesn't answer the question. But like you said, I don't think we have answers to these questions yet, because all these things are really like there were theories back when, you know, they were making Terminator and Matrix. There are theories and now it's becoming so we can see this future. It's right. like we're close you to it now. So it. Exactly. Like we have these tools that we can see evolving into something like the Matrix or Skynet. They're not science fiction anymore. And it's mm. like, how do we now wrestle with with these questions, which I do think the movie came apart. You know, I don't think they planned it like this, but at the right time to be asking these questions, because it is actually a future we could see as opposed to a future we can only imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Okay, Karan, now it's time for your number two. What do you have for us? From AI land, we are going to the lands of past lives. So yeah, this was my number two movie that was actually released in the year, Past Lives, directed by Celine Song, starring Greta Lee, Tae and John McGarrow. Quick logline. Nora and Sung, two deeply connected childhood friends, are rested apart after Nora's family immigrates from South Korea. 20 years later, they are reunited for one fateful week as they confront notions of love and destiny. I'll be upfront in saying I have no, you know, long lost love from, you know, India or other places that I grew up <laughs> in who, you know, I've stayed in touch with, uh, who's haunted me in some way. And then I actually met and what have you and was sitting there, you know, with my current partner at a bar. That's not what has happened <laughs> in my life. <laughs> but there's something about this movie and the, just the notion of people who were born elsewhere, grew up elsewhere, immigrated elsewhere. There's always a piece of that other place that mm -hmm. you call home home that always stays with you and it haunts you in some form or the other. Uh -huh. And this year was the year after a long time, after five years, I actually went back to India because because of COVID and life mm -hmm. changes and such, I just didn't have a chance to do that. And it was such a beautiful time to just be back and connect, not just with family, but just be there, you know, look mm -hmm. at the streets and the chaos of Delhi. And it was the rainy monsoon season. Just look at the rain from my parents' home's balcony, something that I'm very familiar with, but mm -hmm. yet it feels new and different. You kind of feel it and connect with it at a cellular level, if you will, but but yet it's all different. You know you don't really belong here, but it still is a big part of who you are. And that's what this movie, I think, evoked in me. Mm. It is, of course, Heisung, which is Greta Lee's childhood friend, and that you know, feeling of what this could have been and that long lost love. Like there's a, to me, the Heisung is like a physical incarnation of South Korea and home mm -hmm. and growing up over there and those familiar smells and colors. And you know, when you make a left around this turn, what that, what might be there, even though everything else on that turn has totally changed. Those feelings mm -hmm. and those memories will always be with you. And I think that's kind of what this movie captures of that question of you know what could life have been and then it kind of comes to a very beautiful conclusion is that it doesn't have to be either or 
you can cherish what you grew up with, whether it's a person or those smells, or all those colors, and also have a new life in this new place with the new people who are in your life and love you. And to me, that's the perfect balance, right? That you're able to somehow weave all of that. Easier said than done, of course. Sure. But it was a good reminder that that can be done. And I feel quite lucky that for the most part, I've been able to do that. And hopefully I, you know, keep doing it as I grow older. <laughs> so yeah, that's what this movie evoked. And we can talk about the movie as we go further. But yeah, what did you think? Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't see the movie until yeah. the the podcast. I'd heard a lot about it and got a lot of really like rave reviews and and definitely went into it expecting to really like it because at least on a surface level, I think what you just talked about is the theme themes of the film, which I think work really really well in terms of being an immigrant and having you know she's with a an American husband, so it's like how is she balancing her old world who she used to be growing up in Korea versus her new life that she chose in America with a, you know, white husband. But the other plot is more like the surface level plot, which is just this romance thing about, you know, a kid who had a childhood crush and now he's trying to kind of enact that. And, you know, as we've talked about in the podcast, there are a lot of movies that sort of unrequited love movies that I tend to really resonate with me. We talked about once and the before trilogy on this podcast before I'm um, in the mood for love is another one of my favorites brief encounter, which you talked about. And I thought this movie would fit into that wheelhouse and be like, okay, well I'm like sort of set up to like this movie. And I, I don't know. I didn't connect with the romance stuff did not work at all for me. I thought the guy was kind of pathetic and I'm like, get over yourself. Like <laughs> this is some, someone you met when you were nine, like, come on, have a life. Like, what are you doing? Like, I didn't, I didn't feel sorry for him. Like the romance piece really didn't work for me. It kind of just cut, fell flat. But that second layer that you mentioned about sort of being honestly like caught between two worlds, she chose to leave. And well, I guess she didn't. Her parents did. But right. she, she was taken away from this homeland. And like, how is she wrestling with that? And and all the things that I have no experience with this whatsoever. I was born in the U.S. I grew up in the U.S. Um, I don't have that immigrant experience. But I imagine it's a lot like this of like, well, who am I? Like, how much of the Korea do I want to hold, hold on to or the old country how much do i want to hold on to versus envelop this new life and she there's a lot of lines in this of like oh i kind of don't really talk you know korean anymore oh i talk it to you know he mentions to her your korean kind of sucks now she's like yeah well i never really speak it anymore yeah um and uh just i think it just immediately comes back to her like he represents like that memory of this old life and that she don't wants to cherish parts of it but she knows it can't be her future uh, you know she chose her future with this uh you know her american white husband i think those things in the movie were beautiful and, and things that i thought really worked for me but the romance piece i would just kind of like i don't know i was expecting to be devastated at the end or care about them being together and i was like no this guy's is so sad like get over yourself dude like find somebody else like why are you still hung up on someone you knew when you were nine and just <laughs> it just i don't know that that didn't work for me but i thought the rest of the movie and her acting especially i thought was uh was fantastic of the the main the main woman yeah. I mean, the critique that you have, I sort of feel like that is the point of the right. movie. Yeah. That uh, I, don't, right, right. I don't think he actually loves her. I think he's in this kind of arrested development kind of place. And, and you see that, right? Like his life with his friends and he hasn't really matured into right. anything more. You know, mm -hmm. she's become this amazing kind of, and they always have this running joke because Greta's character is always planning what what next big thing that I want to do. Right, 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 right. And achieve, he has yeah. really achieved. Like he has no amb ambition per se. And he's 
he said, okay, and he's been with a girlfriend and didn't really go anywhere and and such. So to me, this is not love. This is more like, oh, just a curiosity, number one, and B, what mm-hmm. else do I have going on? Let's sort of pursue this and let's figure it out. And there's a thing of just visiting the U.S. as part of it too. I don't think it's love. It's not unrequited love at oh, all. Oh, I know. It's not. Yeah, no, I, I'm so not it's, saying... It's just a different story. Yeah. yeah, right. I'm not criticizing the movie for that. I just thought yeah. that that's what it was. And I was right. like, no, yeah, it's well, just not. this is not at all what this is. No. It's about something completely different. Like the past life was this memory that he had of her when maybe he was happy and had his first crush and he just can't get over that. Like his past life is holding him back. Whereas I think she's able to find that right balance of her past life of her being a uh, a Korean She's able to weave that into her present and then also her future. I think it shows a maturity that he just doesn't. I think the contrast between yeah. those two characters is how the movie sort of hits it yeah. at that at that theme. Like it's really not at all about, like you said, a love. It's not a love story. It's not, not about. It's, it's not about that. Well, unless with the husband, I guess. With the new husband, yeah, yeah. I mean, which was weird. That scene was very awkward. I didn't. I also didn't like that scene at the bar. I was. I thought. It was unfair to this guy and he should have put his I foot know. down more like that was just something about that just didn't work for me. It was, I was too embarrassed for him. I know, uh, but just, that's the yeah. point of the movie. Too. Oh, I, I understand that. Yeah, and that's why it's so beautiful. Like that whole opening shot is so amazing of like, oh, who are these people? What is going on? over That here? was great. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I do feel for him, like maybe he should put his foot down more or maybe Greta's character should be a little bit more thoughtful that, okay, you brought him together, but you're just talking to this guy in Korean language that your husband doesn't even speak for mm-hmm. most of it. Mm-hmm. And it's that's kind of rude in, in a way. But at the same time, it's also kind of beautiful that her husband has the security and safe safety feeling with her to let her do this while he's there. And right, the fact right. that she also feels this sense of security in him that she can do this in front of him, that there's no, there's no sneaking around. There's no mm-hmm, like, because mm-hmm. this conversation could have happened when, you know, they were walking around in New York, but they didn't. They, right. they have this conversation together. And in some ways, feeling and expression and emotions kind of transcend language. Like John McGarrow knows exactly what is going on over here, I think even yeah, though he doesn't yeah. speak the language, you know? So yeah, the movie is, and yeah, very beautiful in that sense, but I agree with you. I, I was sort of, yeah, it, it unsettled me for sure. And it, yeah. it brings up questions that, oh, if, if I were in these shoes, what would I do, you know? Right, right, All right. All of these three people's shoes. That's the other brilliant thing about the screenplay. I think the movie puts you in the, in the shoes of all three of its lead characters and asks right. that, what would you do? Right, right. And they each deal with, I mean, I think the the husband, the, the American white husband, his yeah. the past life he's dealing with is his his wife's past life that he can never be a part of. And which is really true for anyone, whether you're mm-hmm. you know involved with, with an immigrant or someone from a different culture or not. Like right. so everyone has a past that you were not in. When you right. join with that person, there is a past. And it's like, how does that, how do you deal with that? I think that is what he's going through, but just in an extreme standpoint, because he, he can never be a part of any of it because of the culture gap there. And and uh, that I think is a very interesting, like he's a very interesting character too. And yeah. even though he's not the lead, I mean, they're, they're definitely, it's a two, it's, you know, the two Koreans are the two leads, but they give the the husband a very sort of strong arc and interesting like um, situations he's put in and how he deals again with dating and being with someone who's from another, another culture who speaks a different language, like all those things. I think the movie subtly without kind of 
getting into it too much, like kind of lays that in there, which I think is, is, is cool. Like that, that part of the movie, I, I really, I think I just got too distracted by the fact that I thought this was a romance movie. And I think that piece doesn't, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that piece doesn't really work very well. And I guess the whole movie, I was waiting for that to like hit me and it never did. And then at the final end, I was like, oh, maybe this is about like past lives. Don't not in a romantic way, but in just yeah. a, uh, yeah. Like in the culture and what em immigrant past is like. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think if I see it again, which, you know, I might, at some I was point, just going to say it'll, yeah. uh, be, I'll, I'll feel better about the movie which at this i thought it was fine like i wouldn't recommend people run out to see it like i was like eh, this is okay that's fine movie like you know it was, it was fine but maybe i need to see it again now that uh, i sort of realized towards the end of what this was uh and not what i thought it and hoping i guess it, it the movie yeah. was about yeah now i would i would recommend that to you and i would recommend mm -hmm. this movie to anybody because i think it's not even about immigration i think we all have past lives, no matter where we were. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is a huge country that we live in. If you lived in, you know, a town, I don't know, in California, and now you move to New York, you, you have a totally different life. You knew people over there that you grew up with. Maybe you had someone you fell in love with, and maybe they are hung up on you. Maybe you are hung up on them or all these questions of what could life have been if I just stayed, you know, mm -hmm. everybody's leaving their hometowns to go somewhere or the other. Right? So that's mm -hmm. why to me, this movie is actually very universal. It doesn't have to be about immigration or different cultures because the culture is the culture of the place that you were born in. And if mm -hmm. you left that place, you're in a different culture. In right. That's true. No. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. No, the, the past lives are like I was saying, just a your past and everyone has a past. Right. Uh, that, you know, especially when when you're in a relationship, you can't go back in that past and be with that person then. But it's how you wrestle with with that and integrate that yeah. into the relationship in the present moving forward, which they they do a good job of showing how the, the maturity of that her and her her husband's relationship even though, again, I just felt uncomfortable for him. At the, at the, even though, yes, he wasn't necessarily, I think, I mean, he was uncomfortable, but there was a sense of trust there. It wasn't like, like yeah. you said, they weren't sneaking around. He knew what was going on. Yeah, I, I do. I should I should see this again now that sort of have better expectations of what the movie's actually about because these themes are are not usually captured in a lot, a lot of different films. They don't no. deal with this. Yeah. Um, like Chasing Amy is probably the only other movie I can think of that has this whole theme about like, a past and how it works into a relationship and can and can't work and that, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah. no, this, uh, I, I enjoyed it. I'm glad I did. See I'm it. glad. Yeah. And I would say, you know, a movie like this, which is a smaller story, an intimate story can be done in so many different ways, but I love that this movie is so cinematic, you know, mm -hmm. it's just so beautifully captured. When you mentioned the mood for love, it, it sort of has a lot of, I think, uh, homages, I think to that style of kind yeah. of lyrical and cinematic and New York. I mean, I hate to say New York is a character in the movie, but it just is. <laughs> and I actually watched this movie in New York while I was visiting. Oh, cool. And I stepped out of the theater. It was raining. And, you know, I, I called my boyfriend. I was kind of teary eyed. And it sort of has that kind of now this movie has that moment attached oh, to cool. me, like a new memory, you know, yeah. on top of it. I'm not from here either. I'm not even from New York. I don't even live there. I just happen <laughs> to be there. So it's it's like kind of beautiful, right, that this movie talks about people and places and moving around and such, but just is going to it's something that we'll keep doing. Right. And mm -hmm. each of those places, whether for a long time or a short time, have some other significance for you and that stays with you mm -hmm. and now this movie 
has this memory attached to it because of that. But yeah, very cinematic, beautifully written. In my mind, one of the best movies of the year, which is oh, wow. a really great year of movies. Well, maybe I should definitely sing it. I, yeah, I would. I liked it, but I I wouldn't put it on like a top 10 of yeah. 2023. So I think I need to take another I mean, the expectation it. thing. I also watched in the theater, which uh, not to kind of, you know, go into our actual top movies of the year. It's I just keep coming back to that again and again. Like these movies just have to be seen in the theater in a dark room with your phones off. Like yep. This is not a movie to casually just put up, you know, on your device. It's just not as. No, I mean, yeah, real movies are made for a, a theater. Yeah. And not just yeah. in scope and size, but just with attention that they expect you to have and focus yeah. and all these things. It's not like a Ant-Man 4 or whatever, where you can kind of pay attention for 10 minutes and know what's going on and then like, you yeah. know, check Twitter again and then go back 10 minutes later. It, this yeah. is not, you know, as the best movies, movies aren't, you know, you have to dedicate exactly. time to them. But uh, yeah, thanks for putting this on the list. All right. What is your next so my number two film that shaped my 2023 is Analyze This from 1999. This is a film directed by Harold Ramis, starring Robert De Niro, Billy Crystal, and Lisa Kudrow. The plot summary, a comedy about a psychiatrist whose number one patient is an insecure mob boss. So I put this, this movie on the list for me because this year, 2023, was the year that I started individual therapy for the first time. I'd never done it before. And uh, I've found it super helpful, super enjoyable, very therapeutic, no pun intended. And this movie was the, f the first movie that I was remembered, at least growing up, was a movie that was about therapy. And then going back and watching it after having you know done some individual therapy, I realized that actually this is a really good encapsulation of what how therapy can help you, how it's really a focus on communication. So Robert De Niro is the mob boss, and he doesn't really communicate as well to his mob family, but then also to other mob families. Like he doesn't want to have a meeting. Uh, he's trying to avoid talking to these other mobsters and definitely communication is, you know, with oneself and also with other humans this is a big part of therapy and something that that therapy's helped me a lot with that. And the other piece too, is just going back and looking at your past and things from your childhood where moments that you might not have thought are very impactful, but they end up being like in this film, you know, Robert De Niro, you sort of, you realize over the course of the film that a major moment in his life was seeing his dad get killed at a restaurant, like in front of him. And it's not something that he likes to ever talk about or ever address. But then when Billy Crystal, who's the therapist, kind of makes him come to terms with that, it really helps him, you know, find the emotion inside of him, helps him with his anxiety and tension and all the issues he has at the beginning of the movie. And there's a there's a funny slash, you know, pretty moving scene, I think, where Robert De Niro is sitting in a hotel room. And this is after he sort of told Billy Crystal about his father and they realize this is a major incident in his life that he needs to address. And he's seen a commercial on TV for like insurance. And it's like a father and son kind of theme in the commercial. And he just starts crying because yes, it is played for laughs a little bit, but you know, that is just something that when you really are in touch with your emotions and there's now a trigger that you have around, you know, in this example, like fathers and sons, um, it is, it is therapeutic to just cry and really feel that even though it is something as stupid as a, um, insurance commercial. Um, but I was surprised going back and watching this of how much actually this, it, yes, it is a comedy. And a lot of this is played for laughs and some of it is a silly, like, Oh, what are your dreams mean thing? Which is not what at least my experience in therapy has been like, but a lot of the, the things that I've taken away so far from my experience with my therapist is actually really captured in this movie in a way that I think is a good representation of why, whether you're a mob boss or not, I think therapy is something that helps people and, and should help people. So pause there. And yeah, what are your thoughts and analyze this? If the uh, first time you've seen it, what do you think? I'd never seen it, obviously, no off it. But yeah, I agree with the resonance with the themes of therapy and 
I agree with you as well. Very powerful, very useful. Everybody should do it in my mind. So those themes definitely come across. Watching the movie the first time now sort of does, to me at least felt like this movie is kind of a slice of its time. Oh yeah, it's late 90s, you know, like for sure. late 90s. <laughs> it felt kind of comical, maybe not in a good way in my mind to see Robert De Niro make those faces, which have kind of now become memes. Oh, yeah. Kind of the, the what, what do you call it? Like, you know, the, the face that he made. Like the mob face kind of, I, I know what you're yeah, talking about. Like when he mugs, kind of, he does a little mugging. Right, mugging and kind of the, the upside down smile, if you will. Yeah. You know, that's yep. what I associate with Robert De Niro. I had no idea that this started with this movie. So it kind of felt kind of memeified in that sense. And then just the humor of it. I mean, these are obviously amazing actors. You know, we know that. But but the central punchline being that, oh, this is a mob boss who should not be engaging in something like therapy. Like that is the central joke, if you will, of the oh, movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is the, that know, is the log line of it. That yeah, is right, the log right. line. That, that doesn't sort of really feel funny. It's interesting but it doesn't feel funny only because we are watching this now. But I kept telling myself that just imagine if you were watching this movie in the nineties, this is Robert De Niro, who's done so many, you know, mob movies for him to do a mob movie where he's crying and wants to seek help and get better. That has a lot of weight, you know? Yeah. yeah this was time. his right. I mean, we talked about meet the parents on a past episode, right. but this was predates that. And this his was transition. really his moment of like, I'm going to do comedy and make fun of yeah. myself. I mean, you mentioned yeah. all the, the faces. I think he's overly exaggerating those in this film yeah. because he's playing off of all these past roles that, right. he's, that he's played like casino and Goodfellas and the Godfather right. and all these things where he's played a gangster. And uh, yeah, I, I guess it is hard to think back. I mean, because I saw this in the theaters when it first came out in 99 and oh, it was a big yeah. like this was like a huge hit at the time. I bet. It, you know, Billy Crystal was one of the big comedy stars in the 90s. And, you know, I hadn't seen at that point all the Bob De Niro gangster films, but I knew him. Oh, he's like the mobster guy. So it was even funny to see him play it up for laughs, even though there are parts of this movie, too, where like you actually are like, wow, this guy could kill you. Like he does a very good right. job of not making it too much of a parody of himself. Which right. maybe he might do in in later, you know, uh, later roles when I think he went too far into the comedy and stuff, and it didn't really work for me. But this is that perfect balance of okay, like he's playing his up his characters for laughs, but there are several scenes in that where like he pulls he's pulling people aside and like having conversations like, oh yeah, no, he could get this guy killed like immediately. And you you kind of believe it like you would in you know Goodfellas or, or Casino or something. But um, yeah, I mean it's a high concept comedy, right? Yeah. A mobster in therapy. Like sounds like you'd be yeah. a tough create if I pitch that to you. You as an exec, you'd be like, not funny. Next, what's your what else you got? You got anything no, else? <laughs> like funny. that wouldn't work in the room to you. <laughs> the concept is very funny. I just think the treatment of the movie is dated, obviously, because mm, it's right, from right. a different time. You yeah. Know? And it's leads playing off of their life history and what they've done in that time is also dated. Mm -hmm. You know. But if mm -hmm. this movie were made now with somebody who we know as kind of a mob person. Or a movie star. Oh, we don't have movie stars now. So we bad. don't. Yes. I don't know who we would cast. <laughs> we also don't sad. have comedies anymore either. So especially also not that, high concept sorry. ones. Yeah. <laughs> so you're yeah. right. This movie is incredibly dated in, in, in a lot of ways. And actually, I hadn't seen it in probably 20 years. And it was interesting. The you know, it's an R rated, you know, adult comedy, essentially. But the humor is very like silly. Very silly. Very yeah. light and like breezy and something you would expect in like a PG movie almost. 
but you know, obviously it's it's not it's r-rated sort of adult content. it was interesting going back and thinking like oh this was there was like a market for this back then right where people would yeah. adults would go out and see like a movie with like bobby de niro and billy chris who was also a huge again oh, i'm sure people were like laughing and eating this up off. yeah like oh he shot a pillow and like oh like you know this stuff that is the you know the lisa kudrow stuff which she's great in this movie too That's yeah like straight straight woman um but a lot of things in this that are like so gaggy but that was just the the time. I mean, my favorite, I think the funniest moment in the movie is when Billy Crystal like tries to impersonate like a mob boss and he's going into like oh, the, yeah. the family meeting. Like that is just that is hilarious. That was a but great scene, actually. Silly, but very silly to, to your yeah. point. Like it's it's definitely a type of comedy that we don't see anymore, though. Again, like I said, yeah. we don't really see any comedies anymore, sadly, on yeah. the on the big yeah. screen. That um, scene actually really worked for me. Yeah, I think it's just the memification and the fact that I'm yeah. watching this movie for the first time now, right? Like if I had oh, totally. watched right, this right, right. previously, I would probably feel differently. Yeah. The other thing that I was also wrestling with a little bit, and I guess maybe because Billy Crystal's character knows that De Niro is dangerous, but the fact that he just keeps leaving her and <laughs> other things to take care of whatever is happening with him yeah i'm like you're a grown man you have an own practice like act like one this is like it became too much that yeah. it was and i know it's high concept is supposed to be funny right that oh whenever he's about to do something important the henchmen are there right which, by the way all the character actors who are de niro's henchmen amazing i love all of those guys <laughs> they are so yeah. good yeah, classic so mob good. character actors again get to yeah. play comedy, right? They get to play. Yeah, they are so good, laugh, but yeah. the fact that Billy would always go for it—that to me felt a little bit too much at times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this, you know, it's the script's got to do what it's got to do. But right. but I I totally I totally hear in that. But it was again, I was, I was actually surprised how I still found the movie again. I hadn't seen it in twenty years. Still very funny. Uh, like I laughed at a lot of the of the gags, and uh, it did feel very like you said very 90s and dated but i mean there was a nostalgia i think that i can tap into that you know someone who's seen it for the first time you know i think that's not something you would have for like oh yeah i remember when movies used to be like this and yeah it's uh i still think meet the parents and his performance in that is actually better but seeing this as a transition between like where he is again making fun of himself but not to a goofy standpoint his persona i mean um not himself but his persona i think he just does a I mean, he's a fantastic actor <laughs> And, you know, you know, great actors can do comedy and and drama. And I think he's definitely one of those guys. So it was fun to kind of go back and and see that that side of him, too. Yeah, I found it okay, funny. I wasn't sort of laughing out loud, but I did find it charming, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's fun to see them. They're not old enough yet because, you know, when I think of Robert De Niro in comedies, I somehow imagine a much older De Niro. Like he looks Uh, really good in this movie. He looks great. Yeah. Yeah. And that's nice to see. Billy looks good. And then also just a reminder of like that they spend money on comedies. Like this movie is well made, mm-hmm. and you know the, all these locations and they go to where Florida, where did yeah, they go? Florida. yeah, Florida, yeah, they go to like, Florida. Like all of that is like they're actually there. Like all of that matters, of course, you know, because mm-hmm. we don't now to your point, we don't make comedies, and if we do, they're sort of green screeny and nobody ever goes anywhere, which right. I that's my number one complaint with movies. Well, actually, number two. <laughs> that I've voiced on this podcast several times that go to the real place if you can. I totally go to the, it would be probably shot in like Toronto or Vancouver and the whole thing would double for like New York and then double for Philly or like they do a lot of that I would stuff. Even it was made that today. as opposed to a CGI. Oh, oh, that's to, what you're talking about. Oh, like a backlot shot on a backlot in Atlanta kind of thing. Right. 
But uh, no, I'm, I'm glad you glad you saw it. I Me guess. Too. I mean, it is, you know, it's a classic part of De Niro's uh, filmography for sure. A big Definitely. turning point for him. And I think Billy Crystal's sort of last hit and where he had real resonance in, in, in the culture was really this. And there was a sequel analyzed that that was really bad. Mm. It's one of those sequels where they basically do the same movie again. And oh. the jokes are like, they're all the same. Like we already saw this. It was so fresh and new in the first mm. one. And this is just sort of like, okay, what's, mm. what's, what's going on here? Okay. So now we are to our number ones. So these are going to be our number one movies that shaped our 2023. What do you got for us, Karan? Why don't you start us off? All right. So this was a hard one. And to be honest, maybe I should save this for the last, but I'll just say it that each of my movies, I could put them on any slot, honestly, because mm -hmm. they're all very resonant. But, you know, I just put this one because it just, I thought about it more since I watched it. So my number one movie that shaped my 2023 is The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp from 1943, directed by Michael Powell and Embrick Pressburger. Starring Roger Livesley, am I saying that right? Deborah Kerr, Anton Walbrook. Quick logline from the Boer War through World War II, a soldier rises to the ranks in the British military. So I put this on my list. I mean, I obviously know of Powell and Pressburger, and I've seen a couple of their movies, not all of it. And it's a big Scorsese year with Flower Moon coming out this year, and I've heard Scorsese talk about this movie a lot. So I just was like, oh, it'll be fun to check this movie out. And I just was completely blown away by the movie. And of course, we'll get into the technical craft of it and, and such, which, you know, Paul Pressburgers are masters of always. But mm -hmm. from a thematic resonance standpoint, I don't know, there's something about just watching a person just grow old in their life maybe this again goes back to me entering the 40s decade. There's something <laughs> about that of just, you know, life and loves and friendships and all of it that you endure and deal with and how you deal with that. Like there's something very poignant about that. But the central thing that really grabbed me about this movie was the friendship between the main lead character and, and the German uh, character. Mm -hmm. And, in a time, especially where there's so much conflict that we are living through in multiple parts of the world right now, there's something, I don't know, very beautiful and human about these two guys, a British soldier and a German soldier on opposite sides of the war, yet having this friendship, which is not without its you know low points or mm -hmm. judgment within e towards each other, but ultimately that's what stands the test of time through all these conflicts. And I don't know, it kind of underlined to me that wars and all these things can keep happening. And there's, there's, I'm not saying there's nothing at stake that there is, but what rises up top is the humanity and the human connection. And that can be true no matter which side you're at. And so, I don't know, for those reasons as well, this movie felt very resonant with all mm -hmm. the conflict that's kind of going around. But other than that, obviously, this movie is just beautifully made and you're totally sucked into it. It's a long movie, but you don't, I never felt it. I've seen it twice this year already mm -hmm. and I was totally sucked into it. Um, but yeah, I, I know you had not watched this movie before. But no. Yeah, I had not seen it. Yeah, it had always been because I'm a, I love a lot of Powell and Pressburg's other films, Black Narcissus, Red Shoes. Mm -hmm. And I had heard about this all the time. It's like a weird title. 
It was long. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. Um, you know, I, at some point I want to watch this. So I'm really glad I was forced to for for this podcast. And I thought it was uh, just um, an incredible, like masterpiece. Like you're watching this, you're like, this is this is cinema, not to sound too corny or anything like that. I absolutely loved it. I thought um, it actually, though, it was interesting for about 20 minutes. I was like, I don't like this. Like, what is this movie? It's weird. I was totally not into it whatsoever. I was like, okay, great. There's going to be a slog now because it's it starts off where you don't. First of all, there is no Colonel Blimp in the movie. It's no. not a character at all, which is which was throwing me. I was like, where's Colonel Blimp coming in? What's going on? Where is he? <laughs> and uh, it starts off with this really, you know, it's set in the present day, like World uh, World War II. It's the present day when the movie was made in like 42 or whatever. And uh, there's, you know, it's not even the main characters. These soldiers kind of like, it's sort of like a madcap comedy kind of. Right. Humor is not working for me. I'm like, this is the soundtrack's kind of annoying. I'm like, I don't like this. And it took about 20 minutes for it to then to do the flashback into the past. And then the movie starts really getting going. And then it opens up and then I understand what the beginning was supposed to right. be for. And it works. And I'm like, okay, now I get this. And yeah, by the end of the movie, I'm like, this is one of the best movies ever made hands down. Like I will be watching this every year, like for, for years to come. I absolutely no, loved I'm it. So I thought, yeah, I mean, from a technical standpoint, obviously, like you said, incredible. Um, some of the, uh, like citizen Kane level scene transitions mm -hmm. and passage of time stuff that I was like, I just, this is incredible. Um, there's a opening scene when they, the main character as an old man kind of falls into a pool in a Turkish bath and the camera oh. pans to like over him, like kind of like getting in a fight with this young commander over back into the backside of the pool. And then he comes out of the pool as a young man, all one shot. And now it's 40 years ago. As and that, they're just a, a brilliant again, Citizen Kane level like transition there, just incredible. And the passage of time showing the the game going up against the wall. So there's scenes in the movie like have to like speed through like ten years of his life, and they show his game room. Um, game meaning like uh, animals, not like mm -hmm. Parcheesi. And uh, you'll see like busts of animals appearing on the right. wall as as you see him like working through emotions. That's sort of what it implies. Hard times in his life, he goes out and kills animals. And then you see them gradually kind of going up on the wall to show the passage of time. Just brilliant, brilliant stuff for technical level. But I just thought the theme was was really powerful around his. He's just some this old school idea of what, you know, British manners and, oh, you know, war is a game. And yeah, it's bad, but there's still rules. There has to be rules. You got to follow the rules. And that um, he's just a man out of his time by the end of the movie where like, you know, you can't. There are no rules in war, really. And I think he kind of learns that even though he refuses to give up on that worldview. He just accepts like he it's his time is passed at the end when he salutes sort of the young soldiers who are in World War Two, because, you know, as that German commander who was his friend is like, look, the Nazis are not you can't play patty case with them. They will break all the rules. And if you try to play by the rules, you will lose. And it's yeah. more important that we beat the Nazis, even if we're sinking down to, quote unquote, their level like war is war. It is hell. So just try to pretend that it's not like it's some sort of, you know, uh, you know, contest, but uh, like a parlor game between like, uh, you know, the high society of these countries is it, it never was that even yeah. though he thought it was. But um, that I think is a message that is really resonant too. I think even today of like, no, like there no all's fair in love and war. That is an expression that is true. Because those are the two most important things, love and death. And right. you, you, there's no such thing as cheating in war. You have to win, um, especially when you're up against enemies like the Nazis, which I think this movie did a brilliant job of just showing how awful like they yeah. were and how important it was to defeat them at all costs, no matter what. And we can't yeah. kind of pussyfoot around it like what yeah. Colonel Blimp wanted to do or not Colonel like, like Candy, Colonel Candy, Candy wanted yeah. to do. He thought that this was all just like a game where we yeah. could just fight for a while and then we'll be friends again and it's fine. It's like, no, it's not. And I think that 
message I think to me was really, really powerful and kind of kind of turned a lot of like what it means to be British, I think on its head and question a lot of these, these things too, which I thought was uh, just amazing and really resonant. Yeah. But, but the beauty of it is that though that is true, the reason he ends up being friends with the German guy is because of that view that he has, you know? So yeah, right. Right. Kind of contradictory points of views and, and maybe, maybe it's a balance that you have to win no matter what, but at the same time, you can also view the humanity of the people on the other side or try to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess you could, you could look at it that way. I mean, I think it is complicated too, in the sense of, I mean, there was even, they bring this up. It's like, well, if we fight as bad as the Nazis, are we then the Nazis ourselves? Right. Right. And yeah, there is a danger of that. And, but at the same time, there is good and evil. Right. Or there's at yeah. least evil. There is at least evil. evil. And you got to, you know, you can't let, you can't let evil have any, like no quarter. Right. And I think that was what the, the German who left. I mean, I love that scene too, when he is, you know, basically a refugee and he's talking to the the British guy, like, Oh, let me in this country. I'm not a spy. Like I want to live here. Look at what the Nazis did to the country that I love. Like he loves Germany. And that's why he has to leave because the Nazis are that terrible. I thought that whole monologue is amazing. So powerful, powerfully delivered, incredible themes. Totally. And that's what I mean by the humanity, right? Like you could be on a different side by country, but it really comes more to what do you believe in? What are your right. values? Exactly. And you exactly. can be seen, you know, for that. You talked about the passage of time. Like that's the other thing. Like I felt similarly when the movie started the first time when I watched it, like what is happening? I don't know if I fully yeah. understand. And mm-hmm. But that's by the end of the movie, that's the genius of it that nothing is spelt out to you. Mm-hmm. It's just the these motifs and emotions that kind of carry you through somebody's life because that's how life would be. You know, you're not going to get cards at the beginning that, oh, we are in this year now. Right. This is not how life works. And then mm-hmm. to top that, the other clever trick of the movie is using Deborah Kerr yes. as this constant throughout all these times and in different incarnations. I've never seen that before. Mm-hmm. Nor, I mean, there are movies like Cloud Atlas and such where the same people play different characters over space and time, but it's not that here. It's just one person. It's not like everybody is showing up in different times. You know, it's just her. Right. Which is just so, again, moving and beautiful and kind of poignant that this guy who loved her just sees her, perhaps. That could be one interpretation. Or the literal one is that there are people who look like her, which I don't think is the point. <laughs> no, right, right. But no, they're trying I to make the, a statement with that. Yeah, yeah, the point is of just passage of time and... And just that the people who you are drawn to and love, they kind of stay with you in some form or the other. They could be a lover. They could be a lover's sister. They could be somebody who ends up working for you. Mm-hmm. All sorts of things, right? Or somebody you end up marrying. And I, I just think that's just such a beautiful thing. And quite the trick is when you see her again and again, it takes a minute to sort of say, oh, is it the same person or is right. it different? Especially the sister, when she shows up, they you. Sh- I think they're watching an opera or some performance mm-hmm. or something, and it's like, wait, it's it's her? Is it her? Is it somebody else? It's just so crazy. But again, I, I love that. Like in all their movies, they trust the audience that they'll figure it out. They'll follow along. Right. Nothing is spelled out. Nothing is sort of called out, and you just live with these people. Right. Right. Yeah. For, for me, the the second, like the love portion of this film where he's in again in love with Deborah Carr but then yeah. his friend is actually confesses the love first 
So he gives her up and lets his, you know, the German friend marry the love of his life, apparently. And that's why he kind of sees her again. I think also goes back to the same theme of like, there are no um, honor or there is no rules in love and war. Right. Yeah. And he should have said, no, sorry. Like I'm in love with her. Like he, him giving her up was again, him not achieving what he should have gotten or wanted out of his life in the same way that with his, his military piece, he's pretending that there were these codes of honor and all these wars he was fighting, even though historically, like, you know, was not the case. And I think the love piece of it also shows he's like cares more about the honor and the rules than he does even his own happiness. And he's losing out on not only then his military career at the end, because he's he's a guy who cannot fight the real war that they need. But also he doesn't really he's not with the woman that he loves and he's trying to find these replacements for her. And they never even had a relationship to see. I mean, there's this great line where the the German friend says something about, yeah, you only knew her as an idea, but I actually lived right. with her. Like, I know what she was like as a real person. So you might think that you're ex-wife remind him you of her but you never actually really knew her which is true he never really did he just fell in love with her in that one time in the hospital and then really never never saw her again actually i think is what the film's implying no, never saw her. never saw her again so it's just kind of i think he's a sort of a sad character in a way that he cares so much about these um again rules that he's not living the life that he should be living and he's lying to himself and thinking that the british weren't like <laughs> doing these horrible things like in these wars where he's claiming, oh, we follow the rules and the enemy doesn't. That's why we always win. I mean, that wasn't true. I mean, Germans gas people in World War One. Yes, but so did the British. Right. And they also killed civilians. And in the uh, there's a whole sequence in the beginning of the movie where he goes to Germany to fight against some propaganda. He calls it propaganda. Oh, we didn't we didn't kill civilians in, in South Africa, the Boer Wars. Oh, we were all mm. fine. It was that. And actually, no, the, the British basically invented yeah. the concentration camp in that war and put all those Boers in concentration camps and were yeah. killing civilians. I mean, that was all known. But for him, he had to believe in this like, oh, we're it's all about the rules, which even I noticed at the end of the movie when uh, they show the, the credits over this tapestry, which they showed mm-hmm. at the beginning of the movie, too. But mm-hmm. I didn't really put two and two together that he's sort of this idealized version of what right. British people think they are. And the and, and this British culture, at least, right? Oh, there's it's tapestry of this medieval. He's a knight in shining armor and this Colonel Blimp guy, but he because he believes in the chivalry and all these things. And actually, they never really believed in when I mean, they may believe in it, but they never acted that way. And that's fine. Like it's not like a knock on them or anything. No one does. I mean, it's war, right? But I think it, the movie's sort of attacking that ideal, along with the love piece too, which is bringing it back to Deborah Deborah Carr's piece. Yeah. yeah, Love and War. I just really this movie is, I mean, deserves all the praise it gets. I think it's just a absolute it's like ten so out of ten layered. masterpiece. I'm embarrassed to say this is the first time I've seen it. That <laughs> was this year. No, so I'm, I'm so glad you finally, you know, made me uh, made me watch it through this podcast. Now I'm so glad you watched it, and, and I feel like I'll keep watching it again and again too. Because I agree with what you're saying. At the same time. If you zoom out in his own ignorance or in his own sort of high and might, he still managed to have a pretty good life and mm-hmm. impacted a lot of people positively, the relationships that he's had and, and everything. So there's that too, right? Like the lies that we tell ourselves whether of honor or what have you, are they bad or do they help us actually move forward, even though you're living you know, an ignorance, perhaps, mm-hmm. as long as you're not causing harm, but maybe you are, I suppose, is that okay? So it, it's not so yeah. black and white. And I think that the movie plays with that very well. It does. I mean, I think what the movie's trying to say, though, is that it's all well and good. And again, like, I think you you should care about the fact that British people put Boers in concentration camps. But the movie's sort of saying, well, the Nazis are different. And this was fun having right. this sort of idea that 
war is a game and we have these little rules and that's all well and good, but this is like a real enemy and we're going to be wiped out unless you just get out of the way. And I think that's what the movie is trying to say, which I do, which I think is, there is some nuance in that too. We need sort of to believe in these, you know, the, you know, maybe things are better than they are and stuff. And I think that's a lot of pageantry of it and all of it. Right. Right. Exactly. I think there is a place for it, but what this movie says is there's a time and a place and world war two ain't that time. Not right now. There is ain't the time. This ain't the place, which I also, you know, agree with too. So I just, yeah, I I'll keep watching this movie forever. I just, again, embarrassed that it took me this long to see it. Incredible. I thank Marty for it. You know, what a great <laughs> year for him. Yeah. And thank you for putting this on my list. <laughs> yeah. It also kind of, I was going to, I was thinking about this earlier is that both of my two picks, like this one uh, so far, this one of a visitor was, and all the Greta connections and such, like it sort of is another theme of the year that film culture has become such a big letterbox culture right like mm-hmm. all people and all red carpet events are talking about their four favorites thanks to letterbox or mm-hmm. film references and such like that's the culture we are living in now which there's a lot of good to that too like you know i probably wouldn't have watched this movie but also yeah. another side to it that is so easy to kind of just compare whatever you're doing and refer to some great work of art and use that to kind of elevate whatever you've done oh as opposed to let the culture actually be the decider that oh actually does it belong you know in the same space or no so it's sort of interesting that Mm. everybody now is getting up and you know having their take i mean i guess this is what this podcast is too right like we are (laughs) we are not uh, exempt from that either but it's interesting that that this is kind of a big theme of the year too at least in the film culture world yeah but but i like i i can see again like the maybe people are trying to like put their movies into a pantheon that, you know, the audience decides that not the filmmaker, right. but I do like that there is this recognition of the past and these masterworks Agreed. of the past and bringing spotlights yeah. to, I mean, if you hadn't, if Marty, I guess, hadn't said that you went to saw this it. movie this year, which means I went to see this movie this year. Right. And I'm right. very, uh, the, I was just still thinking, I saw this a couple weeks ago and still thinking about it like nonstop and want to yeah. find the time to watch it again. It's that good. So yeah, I think it's an important to continue to yeah. look back and totally. spotlight on these, on these films. Cause they are so important, not only to the artist, but I think it's just important to see them. Exactly. So good. And just to life and humanity too, like how resonant these movies are, right? Like, like you just said, Wizard of Oz, we're still analyzing it now. Right. After all this time, like it mm-hmm. just, it's, that says a lot. All right, what is your number one? So my number one film that shaped my 2023 is Roger and Me, documentary from 1989. This is written and directed by Michael Moore, and the plot summary is, after General Motors closes its factory in Flint, Michigan, eliminating 35,000 jobs, filmmaker Michael Moore undertakes a quest to interview General Motors' chairman, Roger B. Smith. So that's the Roger and the Roger and Me. So... This movie and why I put it on the list and why this represents for sure for me the number one thing that I'll remember back on for 2023 is, you know, this was the year of quote unquote like hot labor summer. There were several major strikes across the United States. The UPS workers stroke, the UWA, the auto workers had a big strike. And then here in Hollywood, the WGA and the SAG-AFTRA, the Writers Guild and the Actors Guild also uh, had a strike for a long time. And I have always been, for most of my life, a, a huge supporter of labor movements. I mean, I didn't grow up in a labor family like no one in my family was in a union. But uh, actually, credit to this film and seeing this as a teenager was sort of why I started, you know, for me, labor and solidarity is such an important moral to me that I hold really dear. 
But this year specifically was the first time that I actually went to a, a picket line and walked it in solidarity with a lot of my friends who are in WJ and SAG. So I'd, in past, I would always give money to strike funds whenever I would see them, but I never actually spent the time to put you know my body on the line, so to speak, on literally on the picket line. And I mm -hmm. did that and it was a really rewarding and fun experience. So I definitely mm -hmm. st stood by both the WGA and SAG for what they were fighting against. And I think they also just the testament to the power of labor is they won a lot of huge <laughs> things that they wanted from from the studios when the studios at the beginning of the strike said we will never give you this. And yet they ended up winning. It just shows that that is really the only power we have left, I feel like, in this society, at least the United States, is through labor. So this movie, which I saw as a uh, young teen and really sparked my love and admiration for Michael Moore and then also, again, labor. I had to go back to this movie and put it on on this uh, on this list. I mean, it's how I view the world as you know, it's 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 workers versus the 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 owners, right? It's the workers versus the capital uh, people who control the capital. And this movie helped shape that worldview. That over the last couple decades, I've been more and more like been important to me. But I had to go back to this film, and I'll talk more about the film when we'll get into a discussion about that and why I still think it, it holds up and is very resonant. But curious if you had seen or heard of this film before. No, neither. But yeah, I agree. Very resonant given the time that we live in. And this year specifically, I agree with you. If I were in LA, I would, would, would have supported as well. And so glad that they won and showed their power, but also the, the fact that studios were able to finally understand it as well. You know, mm -hmm. maybe they just feared that nobody... We, I mean, ultimately, they sort of also fear that there'll be no product. Well, yeah, is, that's that's the power that workers have, right? Over exactly, the which yeah. you know, as like some, if I were running a company, I would be worried about that for sure. You know, why mm -hmm. shouldn't you be worried about that? But the fact that they were able to meet them and and they won—that's amazing. But yeah, I never watched the movie before. You know, I have mixed feelings on Michael Moore, as discussed previously. Just mm -hmm. you know. I don't know much about him personally, but just his movies and just his style, but also appreciate a lot. Like somebody has to be that, you know, constant pest in your ear right. to get stuff out. So I do appreciate that. I do respect that. But watching that unfold is is quite uncomfortable for sure. I think as a movie, if this movie were like half its length, it would be so much more powerful because it just sort of goes on because he, he basically, there's no editing here, it, which maybe to his credit, it's kind of pure in that sense. But from a making a point standpoint, the point is already made that, okay, tracking him is so difficult. And you sort of hearing the same messages over and over and over again. Maybe that is the point to kind of really feel the plight of the people. So I get that too. But as a pure kind of film watching experience that at some point it started to kind of lose me because we'd seen the same thing play out so many times. But but yeah, at the same time, the fact that he was able to do this and get into all these creaks and crannies, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, I think what that's he, what documentary filmmaking should be about. Right. I mean, he really this was his movie that his first movie and what put him on the map and got him yeah. all the got him his entire career. And he really did change the game in how documentaries are made. Like he weaved his I own bet. personal story into it. He has a very specific vision that he, it's not just, OK, I'm going to sit the camera back and right. sort of observe. And no, he has a very specific point that he's trying to make. It's more like a video essay in that yeah. sense. And I understand what you're saying about the, you know, his hook was I'm going to try to see the CEO of General Motors and just ask him why he did this. Right. And that is the through line. But 
that's just the way that's like the narrative that connects together this story of, you know, a city that was destroyed by yeah. basically the the union losing its power. So there's a great yeah. montage in the beginning where they show Flint, Michigan, where he's from. So that's the personal connection. Just looking like a utopia in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Oh, everyone has a nice house and they have a great life. They can raise all their kids. There's no you know, there's very little crime and poverty. It, you know, I'm sure it was a little bit of nostalgia lens, too. Like right. it wasn't that perfect, but. He was setting this perfect society up and now showing just the decay and uh, just downfall of this of this used to be a major American city simply by the fact that as you know, they kind of uh, try to make the case at least for is as the union, which, you know, General Motors was the main employer of the town. The unions had a lot of power in the 50s and 60s. And then over time, the unions just got too buddy buddy with the companies and gave too many things away. And now the company, because the unions have no power, can just shut the entire plant down and, and you know, get rid of all these jobs. And it just really like heartbreaking just to see all the workers and just the town sort of gradually crumbling like as the film goes goes on and does not have a happy ending like the end of the movie is the town is decimated and there is no there is basically no hope and then yeah the people stories too that there's sadness there but there's also different people trying to cope with it differently there's a lot of delusion there like the Mm -hmm. interviews with you know the is it the homecoming queen or oh she right the miss, miss, miss america. america yeah she's yeah, Mich- like, michigan then yeah she's yeah miss exactly michigan. like those are so telling like you could sort of say oh yeah she's kind of ignorant or self-centered at the same time you see the humanity of the person right like right. people yeah. trying to patch up and kind of get on with it at the same time they also try to advance their own agenda because this mm-hmm. is how humans survive as well at the same time mm-hmm. right but then there's sadness and this kind of hollowness and hauntingness to it too. So I love all of those kind of really personal human elements because that's what you really need to tell the story of what is happening. Right, right. He mentioned another skill that he has in all of yeah. his documentaries where, yes, he talks about giant structural problems, but he grounds it in these very, very yeah. personal narratives like that one woman who is selling rabbits either for pets or for meat. And you get right. to choose, like, do you want to eat it? Because I'll kill it and you can you can eat it. Or, like, you know, you can have it as a pet. But, like, that's where she's driven to because of right. there's Ugh. nothing else out there. And then the other heartbreaking scenes were with the guy who's, you know, I think Michael Moore even says, oh, this is the only guy who has is now have more of a job than he did before, which is the one enforcing evictions. And he goes right. and evicts people and evicts uh, people. Like, and that's he's like, look, it's not like I'm just the guy like I, it's, I don't want to do this, but it's my job. And all these people just, you know, basically getting their stuff. There's even a scene in Christmas. I think they're like dragging out a Christmas tree because they have to Horrible. pick these people because the landlords is just uh, it's just really terrible. But I, again, I think that the what this movie speaks to is the the solution, which he kind of dances around. He doesn't come up and say, this is what we need to do, but is having power and fighting and not just kind of rolling over and letting, you know, the mm-hmm. the owners take everything away from you. You need a strong union and you need to fight back. And that's why when you take that away, all of a sudden now your town gets decimated. So I think that again was the message that I took away when I first saw this film. And even now, especially this year with all these unions showing a lot of strength and getting all, you know, the UPS workers got what they wanted. The, the UAW got what they wanted. And so did SAG and and WGA. So it's just great to see that. Yes, you do have to fight. You know, there's even a sequence in this, in this movie where there's a sort of, he kind of goes through all these different answers that people have. And one of them is like, Oh, religion. And this, these preachers come and they try to comfort you and say, look, be humble, it sucks mm-hmm. things, but just, you know, be happy that you have your health or whatever. And it's sort of telling you just don't do anything. 
Like it's sad, mm-hmm. be humble, don't fight, don't try to take uh, take the power back or anything like that. And yeah, that message does resonate with a lot of people, but it's not really the answer. That's just giving up, and essentially, as well as like working at Taco Bell. Like they're like, yeah, well, now there's a Taco Bell in town and I'll just get my minimum wage job there instead of my union job, which allowed me to get all my kids to college. And that is also giving up, right? That's, yeah. But it's a sad fact that a lot of people face both of those answers. Like what else can you really do because you don't have the power anymore? You know, the unions yeah. are are not in charge. And it's just this yeah. Roger Smith guy going around firing people and decimating these towns. And the rich people, they sort of just weave the narrative around it. Like I love those, I mean, they're not love because they're horrifying, but the scenes at the country club where they oh, talk to yeah. all the rich people, they're like, no, it's fine. It's great. And, and some of it might just be because of ignorance because mm-hmm. they just literally don't even know what is happening. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, the other big part perhaps is just keep things as is because they're obviously benefiting from it. Mm-hmm. But that's also very human, which is sort of what I love about the whole piece is that the bad guys are not just cookie cutter, one dimensional bad guys. Cause these are real people. They mm-hmm. literally are real people. So <laughs> right. It's a documentary. You know, yeah. These you, are real see, people. Yeah. Their humanity as well. Like, you know, everybody has a bit of delusion in them. So I think that's kind of interesting. It made me think of just living in San Francisco where there's so much change that's happened here, right? This city mm-hmm. is yeah. crumbling in many different ways and there isn't much of a solution. And it's so much of this, right? Like, people who are of means it's so easy to you know be eating truffles and your uni pasta or whatever you know in like a fine dining restaurant in the city here and sort of talking about the problems of the real people right and then you have some you know even though you might empathize with them and such then you go back to your you know $20 avocado toast. Mm -hmm. That's sort of that, right? Right. It's done. You said all the things and then you just sort of back to it. And I'm guilty to to that too. You know, what can you do? But maybe there is more we can do, I think. And I think this movie made me think about that too, because it's so easy to just sit in an ivory tower, even if you're empathizing with the problems of the people and not do anything. And by doing so, you are then part of the problem in some way or the other. Right. And like in these situations, it is like structural issues of the problem. And I don't blame the people, like you said, that are sitting there eating avocado toast. Like what can they're not. Yes, they contribute to the problem, but individuals, they're not the problem. Like it's this is not a people problem. It's a structural problem. And until we upend the structures and tear that down, there's this is still going to keep happening, which is what I think the message of this movie is, is we have to join together to try to dismantle these uh, these systems because that is what's holding us back. It's not an issue of a bad person. It's just a yeah, system that we're all operating the rich. No, no. You know, those are also just people. And, right. Well, some and ultimately people yeah. who are below, they're also trying to get there, right? So it's not like right. no people don't want to be rich and live in nice houses or have like safety and security. Everybody of course, wants that. Of course, everyone wants Exactly. Everybody wants yeah. that. Right, right, right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's about how we get there. And actually, I think... Well, you're talking about the the country club scenes, which you, or did you think are great? And these women, these old women, who, yeah, maybe they're lying to themselves a little bit because I do believe they believe these narratives that they're that they're saying. That the the only person in this movie that seems to be telling the absolute truth is the lobbyist or the auto companies, yeah. where he's like, "Oh, we don't care about Flint. Why would we care about Flint? We're just about making money. Like we don't right. care about the town whatsoever. It's, why should why should the, the company truth. why should the company care about the town? Right? Yeah. And and the, you know the the rich in the town sort of feel like, oh no, this is good for the town and help right. Flint. And which you know again maybe they're lying to themselves. Maybe they actually believe it. It doesn't really matter. But that guy was right. 
And it's no. true. Like you can't yeah. attack a company for just caring about money. That's what they're meant to do. That's yeah. that's the purpose that they are. And they can just destroy a town. Who cares? As long as they move yeah. somewhere else and get the profit, that's all that matters. And I love those right. scenes with that lobbyist because he's telling the truth. And it's like, yep, yeah. at least someone's admitting it. Now, what true. we do about it, yeah, maybe we, is that's a problem or not? We don't know. Let's talk about it. But at least we're we're being vocal about what the actual issue is. And I think that's something that people just don't do a lot even yeah. with the problems today they try to find some way to oh actually it's uh this and it's for this it's like no just say what it is just say what it's it is it's just yeah. they're just in it for the money which is hey that's why they're designed like we can't right. fault them for that you know no i totally agree no it's fun too good that you put this on the list and definitely very resonant for the year and and especially where i live i, I think about these mm. things on a regular basis so it was kind of relevant from that standpoint too yeah, it's a lot of the same issues down in LA. And obviously, again, with the summer with the strikes, I mean, it was very empowering actually to walk, to drive, you know, around mm -hmm. and see a, on every studio lot, there'd be picket lines for months. And it was just, it's great to see, again, people taking action and fighting for mm -hmm. control over their own, uh, their own lives. So it was mm -hmm. a very empowering. And also, again, I, I loved sort of walking the line that one day with all my, my friends. It was a, it was a great, great experience that this film captures well. Go President Drescher. <laughs> it's just very funny. Yeah, President Nanny. <laughs> yeah, or that. So speaking of other other films and things, are there any movies that didn't make the list for you this year? I guess Oppenheimer and Flower Moon were both mm. pretty seminal movie-going experiences, but also relevant in, in many ways. So mm -hmm. I, I, I was thinking about those for sure, but they might come up on a different episode. So Potentially, yeah. yes. Yeah. A little teaser there for a potential yeah. episode. What about you? Uh, so for me, just with uh, once I again, I sort of looked at the themes first. So I had yeah. my AI themes. I was thinking for a while, maybe her artificial intelligence, the uh, Steven Spielberg film or Terminator, a couple other films about uh, unions and, and labor movements like uh, Madawan, Normal Ray and Newsies. Mm. But uh, I think, again, Roger me kind of captured that a lot better because it was the first one that sort of introduced me to to the concept of, of labor movements. And then uh, The Battle of Algiers, a film mm -hmm. that I almost put on the list because I think that is a film that sadly becomes more resonant every time I see it over the decades. Mm -hmm. And especially this year, I feel like that movie captured 2023 in a lot of ways. But mm -hmm. I've never seen it a big terms. blind spot for me. Incredible. Yeah. And you watch it and you're like, this is, might as well be the news. Oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's a great film. So why don't you tell our listeners about what we have coming up next? All right. So next up in our series of filmmakers that shaped our love of film we're going to be talking about michael mann because we have a new michael mann movie coming out ferrari so excited about that episode mm -hmm. and then that actually marks the last episode of the year which is amazing yeah. alex good job on us we've you know wrapped another year another year yeah <laughs> yeah and then after that we're going to take as always a month off for the month of january don't worry we're not going away anywhere we're going to be back in february hopefully bigger and better so Look forward to that. Yeah, we want to thank everyone for continue to listen. Maybe we got a lot of new listeners this year, maybe even follow us from the beginning. We really do appreciate all of the the listens we get across all the podcast platforms as well as on YouTube. And we're excited about what we have in store for you guys next year. Hopefully you'll be excited as well. A lot more movies, a lot more themes, and a lot more of our back and forth. <laughs> yeah, and on that note, you know, rate us, review us wherever you're at, because that really helps other people find us. But yeah, I echo what Alex said. It's been amazing to see this little thing of ours take shape and grow. And obviously, all of that has to do with the feedback we get and the listens we get. So, so thank you for that. 
So until next time, uh, see you soon. Yes, and a ha- happy new year as well. Oh, happy new year as well. Mr. Sheffield! <laughs> <laughs>